The music teacher says it was consensual sex. His former students say it was rape. He had sex with me once in the classroom, um, in a closet. Something happened to me, too. I thought he was our little predator. Why wasn't he stopped? These women seek answers and justice. I'm Julie Ireton, host of a new podcast, The Band Teacher. It's available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Just that somebody could be this diabolical. This is a CBC Podcast. Matthew R. Morris grew up in a city with a lot of expectations placed on him, expectations of who he was, how he fit in, what he would become. He has spent much of his life questioning and defying those expectations. He's been a middle school teacher in Toronto for more than a decade, and he tells his story in a new book, Black Boys Like Me, Confrontations with Race, Identity, and Belonging. Matthew R. Morris is with me in our Toronto studio. Matthew, good morning. Good morning, Matt. When you say black boys like me in the title, what do you mean? So I'm referring to anybody who has been born into a culture where regardless of what they look like, regardless of their parental background, identify as black. And also anybody who, um, regardless of how they may identify how how the world and how culture sees them. So um, obviously the book is about belonging and also a kind of tale about becoming. Yeah. Um, so it's it's about black boys, but it's about becoming uh, black men as well. I want to talk about that becoming in a moment. But you mentioned, um, you know, regardless of, of, of who your parents are, what your parental background might be. Tell me a little bit about your mom and dad. You know, I was raised in a, fortunate enough to be raised in a two-parent household in Scarborough, Ontario, a nice little pocket in uh, Toronto's East End. My mother was a first-generation Canadian. Her parents emigrated from Poland. You know, she was a white woman. My father was an immigrant who uh, came to Canada right before he turned 20 years old from Jamaica. My mother was a proofreader by trade. My father worked um, in a factory, essentially, and did a little bit of um, delivery driving for that company. And through their raising up of me as a, as a young male uh, taught me obviously many different things. Discipline encouraged me to, you know, just put my best foot forward regardless of what I was doing. But, um, you know, the conversation around race wasn't really something that we had in our household until I was a little bit older. Tell me about that. I mean, what were the conversations that you had about race? Were they, did you talk at all when you were younger? Did you talk at all about race? Uh, you know what? Not really. Um, my my parents are from a different generation, right? They were born in 1950, right? And I was born, you know, in the in, in the mid 80s. So, um, the conversations that we had when it came to either me and my brother trying to understand them, or you know, my parents trying to understand us, was more of a generational conversation. It didn't really center around race, which was fortunate for me because, um, you know, I mentioned I have a chapter in the book around hip hop. Mm. My mother, when I was about you know, nine or 10 years old. For my birthday, I asked for the Snoop Dogg CD. Uh, it was titled Doggy Style. This was like 1993 or 1994. Snoop Dogg was like, he burst onto the scene and he was one of the, he was an iconic hip hop yeah. figure even at that time. And, you know, my mother really didn't impede on what I wanted to be interested in. And, you know, she didn't gatekeep in that sort of sense. And she took little nine-year-old me to the mall for my birthday and she bought me a Snoop Dogg album back when I was in the third grade. Um, so that was more of her subtle conversation, her implicit conversation around race and around blackness. She knew that um, at some point, I think she intrinsically knew at some point, I would have to figure out 
my own identity and how I belonged. And her way of letting me do that was to lead from the side of me, mm. so to speak. When did you start to think about race? I mean, that idea of who you were, becoming who you wanted to be, but also um, how you, and, and, and whether you belonged in, in, you know, the city that you were in, the culture that you were around. When did you start to think about that? So naturally, when I reflect on my, you know, three decades of life so far, three plus decades, I know that I've always been a reflective type of person. So that's one thing. And when I first started thinking about race, I think it kind of came towards the fifth, sixth grade. Um, and the reason is, is because I grew up at a time where in the mid 90s, the late 90s, pop culture was synonymous with white culture. You had music that revolved around the Britney Spears, the Spice Girls, the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC. You had television and media that revolved around these sitcoms that centered around middle-class white families like Home Improvement. So everything was around white culture. And, you know, when you start out, when you start to be born and raised in your environment, you want to belong. So you start to try to belong to those cultures. And for me, in elementary school, from kindergarten to the sixth grade, I went to a school that was predominantly white. Mm. So everything that I saw around me was, you know, aligned with, with whiteness. And because I'm black, um, the way my hair grows was probably the first time I felt othered. I felt that I was other, well, another person. What were you looking for? You wanted you wanted a specific hair, hair yeah, hairstyle. Uh, you know, or, or I'm dating myself here, but um, you know, in the '90s there was a specific cut. It was like a mushroom type of cut where the hair, you know, you grow your hair out on the on the top. Some some people, you know, they put the highlights in. Um, and uh, I, f I can't remember, bleach tips, I think <laughs> is what it was called. Um, so that was the style, right? The, the sides were shaved, the hair at the top was long. Um, but for me, my hair, <laughs> you know, when I started to try and get that hairstyle and grew my hair, my hair would just grow up towards the sky, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Kid in Play. Like a giant kind of, like it's like a top hat kind of yeah, on your head. Just, you know, just uh, just like clouds sitting on the top of my head, right? So it wouldn't sit down regardless of the amount of mousse that I begged my mom to buy or the, the gel that, you know, she would go out and buy for me. It was, you know, that the gel and the mousse could, it couldn't face my hair. It was nothing that it could do. So for me, that was my first time being interrupted by race, I would say. And then from... Kindergarten to grade six, I went to a middle school, hmm. a grade seven, eight school, and the demographic completely shifted. So within that community in Scarborough, the feeder schools that all came to that school turned the demographic that I was used to on its head. So I went from, you know, belonging and experiencing an all white environment to essentially all black environment. And that was my first time considering race. What were you drawing on then in terms of what your identity could be? You mentioned Snoop Dogg. I mean, hip hop was a huge part of... Um, as a, as a teacher in some ways. And you say that, yeah. that there's there's no aspect of culture that shaped your identity more than hip hop. Yeah, 100%. It was ubiquitous. It was, it was everywhere. It was the clothing. It was the way people talked. It was what was on TV. It was the references in the movies that were coming out. And for me around that time, it was almost a golden era of hip hop. There was DMX, Tupac, Nas, Jay-Z. It was just, you know, a plethora of, of black men that we could model ourselves around. What right? were you drawing on from them? What they talked about. So they would talk about their brand new cars and I would go and save up my, you know, allowance money to buy a brand new bike or something like that. They would talk about 
the clothes. And of course, I couldn't afford, you know, the luxury name brands they were buying. But aesthetics became important. The way you presented yourself, the way you wanted to look, right? And, you know, the hairstyles with the with the part in your hair. They led a pathway of showing young Black males like me, young Black boys growing up in Canada, how to belong, how to exist as as inside of Blackness in a way that I was never privy to before. Hip-hop's influence was shaping a generation of kids. And, you know, you could argue whether it's for better or for worse. Mm. But uh, at the end of the day, hip-hop's influence on on Black boys is tantamount. You talk about it being a performance in some ways, how you acted based on what you were seeing and what you were drawing. Tell me about that performance. What, what were you trying to answer? Yeah. I, oh, man, that's a great question. And I, when I think about that, I think that we all in certain spaces are performing, right? We try to perform. It's it's our identity. It, it kind of works within this chicken and the egg dichotomy of we are always, you know, becoming who we are. And in order to become who we are, we need to present who we are, right? Or perform who we are. To so, other people and to ourselves. To other people and to ourselves, right? We get called through discourse, through popular culture, through communication. And through that calling, we see what we are supposed to represent, so for me, these are high philosophical ideas when we think about identity and blackness and belonging, right? The idea of performance, right? Because naturally it is what we do when we wake up in the morning and we present ourselves to in public spaces, right? We are not the same person with closed doors, only with just ourselves, right? So when I think about that performance, it's not on purpose. It's it's almost innate. Mm. It's almost subconscious. What right? did the performance look like? Okay, so I'll give you an example that relates to schooling because obviously my experience as a, you know, educator, right? It, it, what it looks like in high school. When you engage with classrooms and with teachers and with education in general, that subtle performance sometimes, it takes on a certain demeanor. So when in educational spaces, the way you present yourself, the way I presented myself as a, as a black male, the way I dressed and how I talked and my attitude towards schooling created a certain idea and identity about myself to teachers, I would argue. In turn, those teachers feel a particular way about me. Maybe they consider that I do not consider my schooling, my academics, my education as it's tied to my future prospects, that serious. And what happens is when they perhaps might consider that I don't think that education is that important, I'm internalizing that. And when I internalize that, then I start to come to class late. So you'd show up late, you would, the teacher would say you're late and you would say back to the teacher, yeah, just something nonchalant. Yo, you know, yo, miss, it's all good, man. I was, my I was bad. In, my bad, miss. You know, my bad, miss. When really I was speaking for myself and I could, you know, speak for many black males when I was doing this on purpose. I was doing this on purpose to assert my identity and in a roundabout way to cement my blackness, to cement my black stitch to hip hop aesthetic and black masculine identity. That's how it shows up. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Talk a bit more about masculinity and, and how what you were seeing 
shaped your idea of what of what black masculinity should be or could be? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm writing in reference to a period of time where I think the idea of masculinity, thankfully, has shifted today. But I'm writing about a specific masculinity that was cast onto black males over the last 30 years and probably uh, before that, right? It's it's the idea of how we are supposed to exist through these forms of hip hop through how education places us, boxes us in, at times impedes our development, at times limits our ability to identify with particular things, um, sports and how we are um, fixed within sports. And essentially, when I think about masculinity from a black male perspective, I think about the ways over decades that black males have been, quote unquote, allowed to exist. Mm. They're allowed to exist in the institution of sports they're also allowed to exist in some form or fashion within the institution of entertainment. And through discourse, we also see a plethora of black males who are allowed to exist in criminality. Growing up, it wasn't explicitly told to us, but it was almost like, yeah, you can be athlete and entertainer. And if those two things don't work, perhaps you'll be a criminal. And you fell into, into sports. I, I mean, did. You, you started playing football. This was a dream that you had. What happened to that dream? Yeah, well, the short story is uh, I ended up getting surgery and, uh, you know, my experience touched reality at some point. But um, this was, in a sense, a self-fulfilling prophecy, but also, in a sense, something that I always wanted to do. I, I've, I've always been inclined to sports, and football was the sport that I started to pick up. And Thankfully, my parents ponied up the money to put me into a football club called Scarborough Thunder. And throughout that, I just focused on sports. And I was lucky enough to um, earn a scholarship to Colgate University and play in the NCAA. Hmm. Where I ran up against reality was, you know, a couple injuries. And we all have, you know, these grandiose dreams of as kids. And my dream was to make it to the NFL and be a Super Bowl MVP and ride off into the sunset and be a businessman one day. But as I continued to, you know, progress through my life, I started to realize that obviously that wasn't going to happen. And I had to start to think about what it was that I wanted to do with my life. And um, that's why that's where sports still connected. I, um, I asked myself what I call the $500 million question. Um, I was kind of at a crossroads. I was in, you know, my third year of university. Sports wasn't working out. School was going okay. I was getting B's and, you know, C's and a, maybe A minuses. And I asked myself, if I had $500 million, what would I want to do with my life? And after reflecting, you know, I thought to myself that if I, if money wasn't an, an option, I'd want to go back to my high school and coach the high school football team. Mm. So that's when I decided to um, get back into education. So sports offered itself a conduit for me. And I was I was lucky enough to use sports up until the point where it paid for part of my education. Um, and it got me to a point where I could actually consider in a mature way what it was that I wanted to do with my life. But as you say in the book, I mean, you spend a lot of time talking about, and you've hinted at this, a, a frustration with the fact that that the options presented in front of you as a black man are pretty limited, yeah. you felt, um, and that you had to figure out a way to interrupt that. How do you think that that limitation shaped your life? For me, you know, I'm an optimistic person. So I, I look at it always as my cup being half full. And I was lucky because I was able to use sports into post-secondary school. Whereas I consider sometimes, you know, I was, I was decent enough intellectually and academically early 
on in my educational career to be pushed into science. But because at recess time I won races, I was told and being validated for my athletics always throughout elementary school, into middle school, and into high school. And that's the point that I'm trying to drive home in the chapter titled The Ball Don't Lie. Um, you know, the ball kind of does lie. It tells these small white lies, so to speak, in ways in which black males are validated. We, we look at sports as this model of meritocracy of, you know, look at all these black males who are providing for their families and, you know, doing well for themselves. But it's through sports. Mm. It's through these, I, I wouldn't go as far as saying racist tropes, but the idea that this is all you can be this is all you can be, is limited when you look at it from a racial lens, a lens of identity. When did you start to question your own role in that and, and, and the performance that you were involved in? When did you start to, to wonder whether that was actually who you were? Oof. I, I want to say once I graduated university. For me, when I started to question that, amongst many other things, came um, when I started to go down the path of education. For me, it was the first time in my entire life where I paused and started to reflect on my school experience. It was a time where I, was, I stopped and I was like, wait a minute. A lot of my friends, a lot of my boys that I grew up with in my community, my own brother, a lot of these black boys were <laughs> impeded by school. School was actually an obstacle for them to succeed. Many of them didn't even graduate from high school. And when I started to reflect, that's when I started to realize, oh, it's because of the ways in which black boys are on one hand allowed to exist and on the other hand become validated in those spaces. Tell now, me about just your brother. Oh my gosh. My brother was, you know, I was envious of him when I was very young because he was the youngest of the family. So he got the majority of the attention. But my brother, he was, he was such a naturally smart person. He is a naturally smart person. You know, he earned valedictorian when he was in the sixth grade. And by the 10th grade, he got kicked out of school. And by the time he was 19 years old, he had spent time in jail. And before his 24th birthday, he was serving a six to 10 year sentence in a penitentiary. I'm not absolving the pathway that he took in his life. But when I reflect of what happened to my own brother, we're born 18 months apart. And on my 25th birthday, I was getting ready to start and embark a career as an elementary teacher. And on his 25th birthday, he was celebrating with whatever they feed you in a penitentiary. And when something like that hits so close to home, you start to eliminate some of these things that exist in both of our lives, right? We have the same parents. We're in similar age. And you start to think about what are these other factors, right? And our taste in music from an early age veered. And believe me, I'm not blaming music one bit. Mm. He was always bigger. So I, I reflect in my role as an educator. I think of perhaps teachers adultifying him too early, taking pieces of his childhood earlier than they should have. And um, ultimately, when he got to high school, more so being uh, forced out of school instead of some mediating factors of asking why he wasn't attending classes or or what was going on. Why did you want to be a teacher? I um, originally wanted to be a football coach. Once I started reflecting on my life, I realized that um, being a black male and in a lot of instances, perhaps the only black male in a school setting that doubled as the phys ed teacher was 
propagating yet another stereotype that black males fit. You felt that it was still part of that limiting kind of structure. I did. Uh, you know, you're a teacher, but you're the gym teacher and you're the black guy and you're the only black guy in the school. Right. When I was getting close to actually the reality of becoming a teacher, my degrees are in English and history. Um, so for me, I wanted to go back into education and specifically teach in Toronto and to be more specific, teach in Scarborough in order to shatter some of those stereotypes. So what do you see as your role as a teacher? I see myself, my role as a conduit from my generation who was kind of already set in their ways to this generation of children, of students, of black males. And it's on me to create a platform in which they can see blackness and which they can see their identity that exists on a continuum, right? When I show up to my classroom with tattoos down to my wrists and I'm able to quote unquote speak their language and code switch and speak in a variety of forms, the subtle messaging that I was getting as a student, my intentions are to reverse that subtle messaging these days so that when black males, black boys, and to be honest, all children see me, they understand that blackness can exist in a myriad of ways. So as they're trying to figure out who they are, like you were trying to figure out who you were, mm -hmm. um, what, what do you tell them about that? What do you tell them about, about that, that journey and what the destination can be? Well, there's a bunch of things I tell them. In terms of the destination, I tell them that the destination for them is open. They can arrive at whatever it is that they really want to arrive at. And now, is that true? I believe that it is true. I believe that if black males are given enough tools at an early enough age where they feel validated in themselves and where they don't have to face a schism a separation of their authentic self and their intentions, then they will be able to arrive at a, a destination where they comfortably feel whole still. You know, for me, I think that when I was going through school, I created uh, two different personalities, right? Who I was on the inside was different than who I performed on the outside. Mm. I almost had two different Matthew R. Morris's, <laughs> you know, existing at the same time. You need tough skin to be able to endure that. So I think that if black males are educated correctly, and, and this is not just a one teacher to a 30 student thing, this is an entire paradigm that education needs to reconsider. I think that if you give young black males the tools and opportunity to not have to create that schism, to know that if they perform and if they want to belong to a certain type of culture, you know, I'm talking about hip hop culture, that they can still exist in academic culture, so to speak. You see yourself right? as a role model at the front of that class? Yeah, a little bit. For them? Yeah. A little bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of this book just finally is about you kind of searching for yourself and, yeah. and searching for who you are and trying to figure out all of that, how you belong and what you belong to. Did you figure that out, do you think? I'm, I'm getting close. I'm getting close. But my lifelong task is always going to be, you know, tied and tethered to education. But my personal task, you know, is to, to continue to seek clarity. When I, when I speak about clarity, I mean for the things that I'm invested in, in terms of, you know, how blackness accentuates itself, what black abundance can look like, and my own personal clarity towards my inner self still. I'm still searching for that interiority. And uh, Black Boys Like Me was just the latest uh, meditation on that search. You feel like you're getting closer, though? I think so. I think I'm getting closer. 
It's a powerful book. I'm really glad to talk to you about it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. Matthew R. Morris is a middle school teacher in Toronto. He also teaches at the faculties of education at the Ontario Tech University and Brock University. His new book is Black Boys Like Me, Confrontations with Race, Identity, and Belonging. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.